you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 6, I, uh, I want to propose to you that the gospel, that our relationship with Christ and what we believe about that can err in many ways. Perhaps one way that's common is to err in thinking that all that Christ demands of us is belief in Him. That's all He demands is belief in Him. When what was read to us earlier by Amy, even the demons believe. Will they be saved? Semantics here are important because belief and faith are not synonyms in the Bible. Mere mental assent, mere recognition of the existence of God or even of Jesus as the Son of God or Jesus saving us is one thing, but faith in Him, the kind of faith that the Bible talks about, is another thing altogether. Today we read a passage in 1 Samuel that I was convicted and astonished by. Believers in the Old Testament who did not have the Holy Spirit as believers do and as believers receive after Pentecost. See, we believe this that, that Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. He's promising the new covenant. He's promising that what Jeremiah prophesies and what Ezekiel prophesies, that instead of us getting the laws and trying hard to do them, we will instead be given new hearts so that obeying comes naturally because we love God. And we find in our passage in 1 Samuel that believers who did not have the Holy Spirit, nevertheless, they were able to stop sinning and start living into God's calling. But we have some background to set us up here. Generally speaking, Israel was in a battle with a group of people called the Philistines, a neighboring enemy nation. They suffered defeat. And so kind of a, a last minute effort, they remember God, they, they talk amongst themselves and, and some corrupt priests of Israel bring the Ark of the Covenant, this Ark of God that is promised to be present. God has promised to be present with this Ark and speak from this Ark in the Old Testament. However, that fails too. And Israel suffers defeat and the Ark is taken to Philistia. <clears throat> While in Philistia... God, through the ark, just wreaks havoc. He literally brings the Philistines, likely the bubonic plague, where finally, after being passed through three different cities, the Philistines decide to send the ark back to Israel, seven months after they had captured it. And so I said, God single-handedly conquered the Philistines here. Well, that's kind of where we we're at. Actually, the moment when the Philistines had the ark given back into Israel possession is where we're at. And so for now, I invite you to stand, if you're able to, in honor of hearing the word of the Lord today in 1 Samuel chapter 6. <clears throat> Beginning with verse 13, we're going to read into 7-4. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley... And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the, Le the Levites took down the ark of the Lord 
and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Bethshemesh. And he struck some of the men of Bethshemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Bethshemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Curious Jerem, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Curious Jerem came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Minadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Curious Jerem, a long time passed, some twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashereth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of all the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashereth, and they served the Lord only. Let's pray. Father, as I pray before services, I'm usually praying the Lord's Prayer. And I think about the words, hallowed be thy name. This idea of making you supreme and transcendent and above everything that we know and love and serve to hallow you. Father, um, these are hard words to preach today because I I fear I fail them and I fear I will fail them again. But I pray for faith in you that you would help my unbelief and faith in your Holy Spirit to do what he's here for. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be better followers of you and help us to live in light of the truth you give us through Scripture, and help us to live empowered by your Spirit. And may all glory at all times be given to you for any goodness you do through us. We thank you for your willingness to work through us. We ask and we pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Three general movements today in our Scripture we see The return of the ark. We see (coughs) reverence of the Lord. And thirdly, we see repentance of the people. First, we look at the return of the ark. We begin again in verse 13, which says, Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. Now you have to... To, to sense the irony in this. Because here's what's happening. The once conquerors, the Philistines, they're coming back broken, bruised, 
and just ravaged from what God has done in their land. Meanwhile, here are the conquered Israelites blissfully working in the wheat harvest. No tumors, no mice infesting their cities. And oh, look, our God is back. Our ark is home. And they did no effort. They spilled no blood for it. In an instant, symbolically, is as if the war that they were defeated in seven months or so earlier has just been undone. And the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. So just in case you're wondering, this is not Joshua of the book of Joshua. That was hundreds of years prior. And stopped there. A great stone was there. Exodus 20 22 through 26, actually has laws for what kind of altars that Israelites could make. And namely, that their altars were not supposed to be built with tools. So this altar fits the bill. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, if you remember, these are milk cows with calves who no longer have moms. Back in Felicia somewhere, Leviticus stipulates that males are to be offered, not cows. Now, this may be one of the other reasons that God is going to wipe out 40 of these people here in a little bit. We don't know. But I wonder if you, if you hear that. Because this is where obedience comes in. This is more than just Yay, God's on our side. I want to be on His side. As in, He's the Lord and I'm supposed to do what He says. Even things that I don't think matter. Male cows. Male cows. That's kind of redundant. <laughs> Female cows. Now you can tell I'm not a rancher, right? Frank? Verse 15. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, and which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, all the five major cities of Philistia. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. So the ark is returned. The ark that had caused so much destruction in Philistia, it first knocked over a statue of the Philistines' god Dagon. And Ashdod, and then it basically spread the plague throughout Philistia. But then we are about to be reminded in some ways of what Israel was guilty of in the first place when they lost the ark. They did not revere the Lord. We move to the second section today, the reverence of the Lord. And he, that is the Lord, struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck people with a great blow. So I said last week that it was amazing that God had single-handedly brought the Philistines to their knees. In fact, last week the sermon was called, We Have a King Who Fights for His Prodigals. And I said that the illustration is in some ways like this angry dad who goes to the bar to set some records straight, 
with a few drunkards who beat his son up, but then the angry dad comes back to discipline his own son. What were you doing at the bar in the first place? In the law, namely the book of Numbers, chapter 4, God gives commandments to the priests regarding the holy things of God, among them being the ark. In Numbers 4 and 5, chapter 4, verse 5, the priests are told to cover the ark. And then in Numbers chapter 4, verse 20, they're told to not even look at it. In 1 Samuel 6, 19, what we just read, we were told that they looked upon the ark of the Lord. And the word used for looked upon might indicate even staring or even gloating as in, oh, you dumb Philistines, you just couldn't handle our great ark, could you? This is a little bit in between the lines here. These are my own thoughts. So you can take this with a grain of salt. But it seems to me that the same spirit back in 1 Samuel 4, where the Israelites wanted the ark on the battlefield to fight with them against the Philistines, is showing up right here. Like, we may have lost a lot of men that day, but it's been seven months. But by golly, the ark pulled through. We showed them... The ark is on our side. I wonder if you hear the wrong spirit. In other words, it's the rebellious son who went to the bar in the first place, and he's more glad that his dad went down there to beat up all those evil men than he is feeling sorry for his own sins, or than he is for learning from his own actions. Just my thoughts. And let me just say this too, some of us, myself included, Maybe we're a little bit beside ourselves with some resentment. Maybe we might think it to be righteous indignation and and we decide to, to don a robe and grab a gavel and start making judgments concerning the way God sometimes does things. Uh, you love this people, God. You love these people, but you just wiped out 40 of them for looking at your ark the wrong way. And before we start sinning by mustering up the audacity to think that we can judge God... Maybe we should consider what God is trying to say here. I think it says this. That there is a sacredness to God. There is a holiness to God. I'm only 30 years old, but I think we live in a world that is constantly losing any concept of sacredness, of holiness, of sanctity. We have a world where some people, even in Western civilization... Right where we think civilized people ought to live. They don't consider human life sacred. People who think themselves to be innocent where murder is concerned and we are willing to murder babies up to the point of birth if not slightly after. We have a world where sex is not sacred. But it's used to sell things. It's abused. We have a world where Jesus is not sacred. His name and every variation of His name, God, Lord, even His holy family like Mary, they're all used like empty, vain cuss words. And here God comes through the ark after just single-handedly conquered Israel's enemies after they didn't even deserve it. And the first thing they do is throw God's law from numbers out the window. Well, here's a rare occasion. We have the ark here to behold in all of its majesty. Let's take a look, son. Look. God has said no. He's holy. He's sacred. He's given them warnings in Numbers 4, and so He's following through and wiping out some of them in Beth Shemesh. 
Well, now we read that maybe some of the remaining people are beginning to get the picture that God's not playing around, oddly enough. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. So this is kind of like what was happening back in Philistia. If you remember last week, or if you look back in chapter 5 real quick, you see this pattern. The ark topples the statue god Dagon in the city of Ashdod. And then the plague breaks out and does some damage. And then the Ash Dadites <laughs> cry out. <clears throat> and then the plague breaks out in some other city and does more damage. And then they just give it to Ekron. And they're playing hot potato with the ark. Well, we're back in Israel and Beth Shemesh and some people die. And they say, here, give it to Kiriath-Jerim. We don't want it. <laughs> and some speculate that Kiriath-Jerim may have been a place where the Canaanites, the people that lived before the Israelites, before they conquered them, that's where the Canaanites maybe worshipped their god. And so this city just seems like a fitting place to send a god, I suppose. Chapter 7, verse 1. And then the men of, and the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Aminadab, Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years. And I want you to hear this, because the next word here in verse 2, and, moves us from all the events prior to 20 years later. 20 years later. You know, I was watching a movie this last week, and I noticed it was made in 2002. Anything 90s, early 2000s, even still sounds relatively new to me. 2002 was almost 20 years ago. There are adults walking around that were born in 2002. Israel lost a war. God threw the Philistines into a plague. God wiped out 40 men at Beth Shemesh. God gave Israel back their ark, but then 20 years pass. And it isn't until 20 years later that finally, finally, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This is where we start our last movement of the passage to today, repentance of the people. And here's what I'm saying. God's graciousness... God's patience is long overdue for some of us to perk our ears up, take advantage, and respond obediently. Some of us, it's God's grace after God's grace. He's fighting wars for you. He's giving us favors, intermittent with discipline, because that is how I, as a dad, work with Calvin. I love him. I love to spoil him. I love to love him. And I do so intermittent with necessary discipline. Because the hope is, is as he grows, so will his maturity. So will his obedience to the Lord. And that's God's heart. Some of us are hard-headed. And some of us need to hear Paul in Romans 2, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Twenty years. I was 10 years old 20 years ago. Finally, Israel decides to lament after the Lord. 
And maybe it's because they're in similar circumstances. 20 years was apparently also long enough for the Philistines to forget the panic that ensued while the ark was in their territory. They might have said, well, that was a bad seven months. Why don't we just wipe out Israel this time and then let them keep their ark? We're going to study that for next week. But first, our author deals with expanding on the people lamenting after the Lord. And he does so by reintroducing us to a main character, to a guy we haven't talked about in a while, a guy who hasn't shown himself for apparently upwards of 20 years, it seems, on the national scene, a guy named Samuel. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods in the asterisk. Now, Samuel is actually using a catch-all phrase. In other words, he's saying, take any and every god that tempts you and be done with them. That's what he's saying. From among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asheroth, and they served the Lord only. Excuse me, never mind. thought I had water. <clears throat> Anyways, now... Here is kind of the point I made if you're following along in the study, guys. I don't know about you, but I feel a little upstaged by the pre-Pentecost Sunday Old Covenant believers. Like I said to begin with, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit and not only the law to obey, but also the power to. And here are the Israelites who are told, put away your foreign gods. And let me just say this to you, because some of you might be thinking, I don't get it. What's so attractive for these old cavemen about statues? Why do they have such God problems? And it wasn't always about the God. <clears throat> it was about the ritualized worship of these gods. Rituals such as sins that you and I deal with. Ritualized prostitution, ritualized violence, ritualized gluttony. So have no doubt, Samuel is saying, stop giving into your same old sins. Stop sleeping around. Thank you. <clears throat> Samuel is saying, stop giving into your sins and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. And then verse 4. So the people... Oops, never mind. Verse 4, so the people of Israel served the Lord only. They did just that. Now, you might come week after week and hear me say, hey, you can stop sinning. <laughs> and then you might say in your head, like I do, I can. Gee, I should really get on that. But let me just confess as the pastor that I go home and still sin too. So we're all in this boat of guiltiness, except for you holy ones. These guys just showed me up. Maybe I would realize the stakes were higher if I lived in Samuel's time. And he, the voice of God for all of God's people, if Samuel said, hey, I'm God's voice. And he's promising deliverance from your enemies if you serve him only. Maybe I should serve him only. Now this is where I get to scare you. Some things change, but that part doesn't. Some of you have been fooled into thinking that a sinner's prayer and it's all done. Sure, God wants us to obey, but if we limp along and we shirk it, well, there's always grace. What does Jesus say? Some will say to me, Lord, 
Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And the Lord will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Jesus says in John 15 too, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, God will take away. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Paul tells us plainly in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, or do you not know that the unrighteous, and you might be saying, well, by unrighteous, Paul means unbelievers. Well, he would have used unbelievers. I guess I take the Bible literally and say that Paul means unrighteous, regardless of what that person believes about their believing in God or not, even the demons believe and shudder. Paul is talking to a church in Corinth here who says that they are part of the kingdom. And Paul is setting the record straight for even folks who say that they're Christian but practice unrighteousness, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And before you say, this sounds like a works-based transaction where God only accepts me for my work, I would say James 2 says, no, God receives those who have real living faith. Not a superficial faith that shows itself to be not faith by virtue of having no response of love. Do you hear the difference? My vows mean nothing to Christy on my wedding day if I'm not living those vows out by my actions every day after I said those vows. They're just words without meaning, without honesty, and are ineffective if I made vows that I don't intend to act on. It goes back to John 15. Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. That's beyond mental assent and simple mental belief that Jesus is who He says He is. Jesus says, Bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you... Keep my commandments. We miss that. That's the point. That's what I'm talking about. Hear that again. If you keep my commandments, Jesus is saying exactly what it sounds like. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And so, in essence, Samuel says to Israel... Keep God's commandments. And they did. They did. And so, friends, we have a king who expects obedience. He expects it. See, some make the gospel about this. We have a king who expects obedience. We're incapable of giving it. So our king comes and gives the perfect obedience, dies for us to pay the price for our not being able to give it, and then we're saved. And I just want to say the gospel goes further. I say the gospel is also this. After dying, our king leaves his spirit in us so that we may now give obedience. Do you hear that? We receive the merits of his obedience, but we also receive the spirit of his obedience. And friends, if pre-Pentecost Israelites can obey Samuel, you can obey Jesus. Amen? 
I'm not saying it's easy. And so when you hear a message like this, you and I have a propensity to fret and to worry and to sweat and to fear. And we're tempted to bring out a notepad and say, well, okay, Kevin, uh, give me the checklist. God wants me to do what now? What are the laws? What are the rules? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Simply because something might be hard doesn't mean that it can't be simple. Simple and easy are two different things. It's simple. Abide in me. That's what Jesus says also in John 15. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Being loved makes all the difference, doesn't it? See, if a stranger shows up at my house and says, Kevin, I want you to stop by and and visit me a couple of times a month. I want you to just pray earnestly for me and, and really mean it. And I want to share a meal with you often. And I, and I really want you to do chores around my house when I tell you to. And I'm sorry, I don't know them. Not a chance. I don't feel any desire to do that. If my dad stops by my house and says, Kevin, I want you to stop by and visit your mom and I a couple times a month. Easy. I already do. Because they love me and I love them. Kevin, you know, I really want you to start praying for us earnestly and mean it. Easy. I already do. Because they love me and I love them. And Kevin, when we need help with chores around the house, we would like you to come and help us out if we ask you to. Easy. I already do. Because they love me and I love them. Do you hear that? And so when things like bear fruit come to your ears, or when you hear things like, hey, stop sinning, and don't tell me you can't because I've died and given you the power to, and when you hear things like the unrighteous aren't inheriting my kingdom, hear it from a Father who loves you. Hear it from a Father who has been there, who has died for you, who has given you the power in the Spirit and gives commands to you in the greatest of love. Friends, God wiped out 40 people in Beth Shemesh. He told the Israelites to worship Him alone. Israel comes around 20 years and puts away their gods. But all this was after God single-handedly whipped their enemies for them. So when God shows up to you and says, obey me, obey my commands, right? See, John 15 has these two great phrases in it. It has our denominational name and this command to obedience. You are my friends if, if you do what I command you. Hear it from the God who has proven his love to you. Hear it from a God who's not wanting to pull the rug out from underneath you. Oh, you almost made it to my kingdom, but you didn't quite obey me enough. Rather, hear it from a God who has become flesh, who has died for you, died for your sins, every single sin, who has risen again, who has given you his spirit so that you can say yes, you can obey, you will obey, because he has proven his love to you. He has shown that he loves you. He considers you his dearest children. He considers you his friends. And he's saying, I've laid down my life for you because I love you. Can you please now lay down your life for me? Do you love me? Do you hear that? And I don't know about you, so I'll just talk about me here. But I have a propensity to still want to rebel. I I still want to shrug and say, well, why should I? It's too hard. And I'm tempted to ignore passages that frighten me and and that say, hey, bear fruit, stop sinning. 
And I'm tempted to minimize sermons like this. I'm tempted to have my own personal defense attorney rise up in my heart and say, well, wait a minute here, Kevin. You just said it yourself. God loves me a lot. He died for me. There's grace and grace and grace. He wouldn't be this demanding of my obedience. And I think it goes back to the reason 40 people were wiped off the face of the earth in Israel to begin with for staring at the ark. Our father is holy. Our father is a loving father that we can boldly approach, but he is also still sitting on a throne. And even though it's written into the very fabric of the American heart who was born out of a nation rebelling against the kingdom, we need to reach down and find that part of ourselves that understands what reverence is. That understands that there are things and there are people that need to be revered and considered sacred in our world. See, God is made up of the right amount of loving Father and the right amount of sovereign Lord and King. That should cause us to fear Him in the right ways. Our King has a right to both expect and to receive obedience. And our King has given us everything we need to be obedient. Amen? Let's pray. <coughs> Father, it's, <clears throat> it's hard words. Some of us, I'm afraid, are not going to realize that we've just been in the presence of your throne. Your word tells us in Hebrews that every time we come together and worship you, we are really in the presence of angels and departed saints worshiping you. And some of us are going to listen to your word. And because we truly have an enemy who doesn't want us to obey, whether that be the enemy or just our fallen nature, we're going to go home and do everything we can to, to minimize what we've just heard. I pray that your spirit would not allow this to be the case. Pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us until it brings about true repentance. Hard things are not bad things. Hard things don't need to be gloomy things. Father, an athlete feels much gratification whenever he's trained enough to where he wins the race. Help us to be trained enough to walk in the light as we are in the light. Your word tells us that if we walk in light, we're really being in darkness. We really don't, aren't part of the light. Father, I pray that you would give us this truth over and over in our hearts whenever we're tempted to disobey. Holy Spirit, I have everything I need to obey here. I have you living in me. And help us in that sense to be obedient in that time. And Father, whenever we fail, let us, to under, let us understand what grace is. Let us understand that you still forgive us, but you are expecting obedience. And that obedience leads to greater pleasure living in your kingdom. Obedience means that we're going to be live, living free from the sins that entangle us, free from the oppression that sins bring, and free from the depression that sins bring. But we're going to be living in light of your holiness and grace. Father, we love you. We thank you. We ask and pray that you would do this reality in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.